Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. Today you'll hear about the impact of the 2010 elections on U.S. healthcare reform, presented in collaboration with Reuters on November 5th, 2010. Good afternoon and welcome to the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. My name is Robin Herman and I am Assistant Dean for Research Communications at the School and Director of the Forum. Uh, we are so glad you were able to join us today here in Boston for our first event in our beautiful new studio venue. Our program today is a discussion of the impact of this week's election results on the U.S. healthcare reform, and we're presenting it in collaboration with Reuters. Before we begin, Professor Robert Blendon will make some remarks. He's director of our new division of policy translation and leadership development, which oversees the forum and our other leadership programs at the school. So, Bob? The uh, launching a new series is always a special moment for people who are involved. Over the last 10 years, if you step back a second, health issues which affect people's lives have gotten to be much broader. They affect the economy, fiscal stability of countries and states, uh, national security, uh, trade and travel, and climate change. And so the basis for the uh, series is to want to project out into the discussions about what we do about these issues more on the sense of what analysis and science can at times yield. And one of the strange things about today is this would be usually described as a domestic discussion, but actually it has worldwide interest. Uh, the healthcare in the U.S. economy affects our relations with other countries, how this election affects what we actually do about our future expenditure problems, affects not only that. Uh, so our collaboration with Reuters, uh, having actually talked to reporters from other countries already, is going to yield interest in other countries in trying to understand how we deal with some of these problems. So it's a privilege to join uh, with my colleagues here today and to join with you in launching something that I think will make this school and the university feel a bit differently about its role in these issues. And thank you very much for coming, and thanks for the role Reuters has played in planning this to date. Maggie? Thanks so much, Bob. Right. Um, I would like to introduce Maggie Fox, who was a health and science editor at Reuters, and she's going to be moderating our event. Thanks very much. Uh, this event is about the election. The election's over, but it's clear that the battle over health care reform is only just beginning. The Republicans are already vowing to derail it, and the Democrats are arguing that Americans would just love health care reform if they only really understood it. What's clear is that most of us are confused. Um, some of the basic facts haven't changed, however. Americans pay more per capita for health care than anyone else in the developed world, and arguably get less quality for that. Uh, many experts say that uh, Americans don't get their money's worth. We're dying younger, we have higher rates of obesity, heart disease, and diabetes, and we're more unhappy with our healthcare system than folks are in other countries. Costs are going up as well. Costs for medical care are rising faster than any other component of the core consumer price index, with the exception of education, which I think some of the parents in this room can understand, especially here at Harvard. So let's see if our panel of experts can sort all of this out for us today. After this session, you should be able to explain the future of healthcare clearly to everyone you meet. And we fully expect all members of Congress to be watching our live video feed today, and they will be able to deal with these issues far more effectively, thanks to our experts. With us today are Douglas Holtz-Eakin, David Cutler, and of course, Bob Blendon. 
Uh, Doug directed economic policy for John McCain's presidential campaign. He's now president of the American Action Forum, which says it's dedicated to keeping America strong, free, and prosperous. Yes, we like that. Dave's the uh, professor of applied economics here at Harvard. He served on the Council of Economic Advisors and the National Economic Council during the Clinton administration, and he advised President Obama during his campaign. And of course, we have Bob, who's a professor of health policy and political analysis here at the Harvard School of Public Health, and he directs the Harvard Opinion Research Program, which conducts and analyzes polls. So. We're hoping to make this a conversation uh, among the audience and among our viewers on the webcast. But uh, each, of our, each of our panelists will start with a very brief introduction. Doug? Well, first of all, thank you for the chance to be here today and thank you for coming. And if indeed you can, even before the event, explain the future of healthcare reform, <laughs> I will trade seats happily. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I think there are a couple things that uh, are, are pretty clear. Uh, number one, uh, we needed health care reform. That was the bipartisan agreement going into the, the debate. Um, uh, I think that, that remains true. Um, what we will see going forward is that the, the passage of the law was simply the, the opening round of the debate over what is the future of the U.S. health care system. Uh, the parts on which I think there was largely bipartisan agreement were delivery system reforms, things that were desirable to address the charts that Maggie put up, uh, the parts that were about which there was tremendous partisan discord were the coverage expansions and how they were both uh, undertaken using Medicaid in particular and financed. Uh, so I expect uh, that the outcome going forward would be one where uh, coverage expansions, mandates for individuals, employers, Medicaid provisions, uh, state-based exchanges, and the subsidies are all under fire continuously. Uh, but the delivery system reforms become the piece about which there is some agreement and which are preserved in a less combative fashion. But um, it is just the beginning of what will uh, prove to be an ongoing debate for years to come. Dave. Well, thank you, Maggie, and thanks to the school. Um, it's always good to give forecasts because whenever you turn out to be wrong, you can blame it on someone else. So um, it's, it's, uh, it's good to start off that way. I guess I am um, quite pessimistic after Tuesday, and I think there are a couple of reasons why. C pessimistic about the future of our healthcare debate. One is the Republicans do have ideas beyond repeal and replace. If you look at the roadmap for America's future that Congressman Ryan laid out, <coughs> it's big planks on healthcare. There are two of them. One is we ought to actively encourage employers to drop insurance coverage and give people instead a voucher for health insurance, so you go out on your own, and the voucher is worth about one-third the cost of a health insurance policy. That's plank one. Plank two is, starting 10 years from now, privatize Medicare. So you, when you turn 65, you get a voucher, you go take your voucher wherever you want, you go deal with the insurance companies, and by the way, the voucher increases less than the cost of the program. Newt Gingrich tried privatizing Medicare a decade ago. It didn't work. George W. Bush tried privatizing Social Security half a decade ago. It didn't work. John McCain proposed having employers drop coverage and having people go out on their own. It didn't work. So the big ideas that the Republicans have don't appeal to the population. 
if the Republicans want to get something done, they're going to have to do what the president did, which is tell the base they can't have what they need or what they want and try and compromise in the center. And I think if they wanted to do that, they could probably find a receptive audience. So if they wanted to say, let's lighten up on the mandate initially, but keep it for if we really need it. Let's do a little bit more malpractice reform, but keep the subsidies. Let's help support. So if I thought if that were the language I was hearing, I would be more optimistic that we could reach something. I haven't heard a shred of that language. The only thing I've heard is get rid of it, start over, do something more Republican, which doesn't have support. It's never had support. It's not going to have support. We're likely to have an immense stalemate. And I would not be surprised if we shut down the federal government over funding of discretionary health care early next year, the debt ceiling limit. There are going to be about t the, the, the physicians' payments. There are going to be about 10 opportunities to shut down the government. If we're not going to shut them down each time, we're going to have to compromise. And that strikes me as somewhat unlikely. Thank you. And uh, let me just explain how we got to these remarks. That is, uh, something happened on the way to this election, and we have lost the political center in this country. So let me, and we'll pretend we're confidential briefings, let me tell you what Republican voters for the Congress said to pollsters. The economy is the top issue. Health care is a bill that's going to hurt the American economy. I completely oppose this bill. Uh, uh, what I want done by the new Congress is to repeal and replace it, and important to use the word replace with something else. Same time, confidential, Democratic voters to their pollsters. Um, economy top issue has nothing to do with health care. Health care won't affect it at all. I really like this bill. The problem with this bill is it didn't go far enough. Uh, Obama settled, and that's why I'm not so motivated. Uh, for that, what should the Congress do? Definitely implement the bill. No possibility uh, of repeal at all, in my mind, or anybody I would vote for. Now, what's the secret in, in my world? We measure intensity. And at the moment, the intensity of your feelings are most for Republican voters. So a Republican voter was three times more likely to feel strongly about their views than a Democratic voter. So if I am the leaders of this House, that has just been elected. I have people who believe the top issue is the economy and this thing is standing in the way of economic recovery and they feel very strongly about it. So it's very hard for people reading those results to meet the president and have some sort of a moderate compromise in between. For Democrats, it's a disappointment. They didn't get the right bill and they expect Obama and their leaders to go back and get the bill that they really wanted. This is not a picture for a country finding agreement on a complex set of issues and moving forward. That's what it looks like from my world at the moment. Well, let me ask, is there any common ground? Mm -hmm. is, is there a place where there can be agreement? And Doug, you might be able to speak to this first. Well, I mean, I think the things that I mentioned at the outset were the common ground uh, back at the beginning in, in uh, this debate and remain the common ground. Um, the notion that we don't get our money's worth, that the value proposition can be improved, uh, that uh, the government was already paying about half the nation's health care bills and could be used as a, a large lever to uh, implement better value propositions. I think that, that all remains true. 
it's the the part that's not particularly sexy that never gets talked about in the in the public debate. And I think that that you know beefing up some of that, um, pushing that forward in the, in the implementation is going to be something about which there can be compromise and agreement and. And that would be good, I, I think, for the reform. I think the real contentious issues, as I said, are in the coverage area and the budgetary implications, where I think you know we simply cannot afford this bill, and, and for that reason alone, it will have to change. And you know, here we go. But you don't see that, Dave. No, actually, just one point. Most many of the Republicans have been talking about going back on some of the delivery system changes. For example, they've talked about repealing the independent board that would recommend changes to Medicare, and they've talked about getting rid of the money for innovative changes in Medicare. So I'm not even sure they're comfortable with that. But it's important not to overread individual requirements. Like the Ryan is not a plan, is not a Republican plan. That, that, that's not a consensus proposal. So I, th I think you have to be very careful about overreading individual statements as, quote, the Republican position. It simply isn't such a position at the moment. But let me, but let me come back. I think um, the, the, when the president had his summit meeting in February with the Democrats and the Republicans on the House what they uh, in, uh, on Congress and they all came together in Blair House the um, I watched the god-awful whole day of it it was, <laughs> it was, it was mind-numbing the interesting thing about it there was a fair amount of agreement as Doug said about the delivery reforms not amongst all because many of the Republicans want to go back but where they were was the Republicans said you know what mr. president we don't think we can afford to cover Americans now. So the Republican strategy was try and save money. Maybe they had slight, some of them slight bells and whistles, but we don't think we can afford to cover people. Well, I think that's bad policy to try and save money without covering people. And what's more, there's absolutely zero Democratic constituency for saying we are going to do everything possible to take money out of Medicare and Medicaid without using it to cover people and instead use it to either cut the deficit or worse yet fund enormous tax cuts for wealthy people, which is also on the table at the same time. So you could say, well, yes, let's carve all that stuff out and get rid of it and agree on the rest, but that's not going to work. That's not where half the people are. That's not where the analyst community is. That's not that's just not going to happen. So either the Republicans are going to have to make peace with covering substantially all Americans, or it's just not, or there's just not going to be anything there. Well, even without going into what the actual issues are, is is there any room for compromise, even politically, or is it all about politics and opposing any kind of solution? It doesn't matter whether either side agrees this is the right way to go. They don't want to be seen as cooperating with the enemy. Well, I, I think an important thing is, is what Bob said, and, and it's important to, to understand that if you look at uh, polls on the election, 60% of Americans thought America's on the wrong track. Uh, within that 60%, 94% opposed the health care reform. So that's not about my version of coverage expansions versus David's. That's not about IPABs or no IPABs. That's litmus test about whether we're on the wrong track. And so that says the government's doing too much. Reflexively, the, the health care reform embodies that in their minds. Uh, it harms the economy, and that should have been the top priority. Um, either directly it harmed it, or they spent time doing this bill instead of taking care of the economy. And so those strong emotions are tied up in, in the uh, views of the health care reform. So there is going to have to be a purging of those emotions, which is there's going to be up and down votes to repeal this thing. And it'll pass the House, it'll die in the Senate, and then we'll get on to the real business. But I mean, that politics has to play out. They promised a vote on repeal. 
the third most important issue in the election was accountability in Washington, so they can't go to Washington and not hold a vote on repeal. So get ready. They're, they're going to vote to repeal in the House, and it'll pass. Will that let off enough steam for then something to happen? Well, ask how David reacts to it. That's the issue. <laughs> <laughs> well, they'll clearly vote for it. That's fine. I don't. Look, they promised their base they would vote to repeal it. They'll vote to repeal it. That's fine. Right. That what I haven't seen is any sense that there's a step two after that. And you have the leader of the Senate. In the, the Senate leader of the Republicans saying his primary goal is to defeat the president. Why? So that he can repeal the health care bill. And you have Republicans who are sworn to do nothing. Before. So let me just play out the example. December physician cuts, 21%. They're going to pass them? With what money? Are they going to do that in this, say, well, we're going to take money out of some other health care program? The debt ceiling has to go up at the end of March, I think it is. They're going to really do that without, you know, when, when are they going to, when, when are they going to come to terms with the fact that they, if they want to get something done, they have to compromise without having said a single rhetorical thing that suggests they're willing to do that. The president was very open. I'll work with anyone who wants to work with me. He even said it the other day. He kept saying it. He made many, many overtures to Republicans weren't met. I haven't seen anything that looks like an overture from the other side. Maggie, let me try this. The, there really are only two scenarios. So one's the vote about the re repeal is over. Um, the uh, issue is whether or not the two sides could compromise on a much smaller, milder bill. And I don't think that's clear. In between, so uh, Haley Barber, who's uh, president of the Republican Government Associations, and one of the things we haven't discussed, and I'm sure we'll get into it later on, is uh, a very large number of Republican governors were just elected. They have a big role here, and they said very clearly they were going to do very little to implement this bill, and so they're going to be there. So you either go and really renegotiate down to a much smaller uh, bill with much less expense, less coverage, etc., or uh, you pursue, because this is really very important, back to my point about the salience, having passed the symbolic vote is not enough for Republicans. So if they can't repeal the bill, and so what did Haley Barber said? He said, we can't repeal this bill. What we're going to do is make it look like something you never saw or imagined within two years. How does that occur? That's having budgetary fights over pieces that are available over and over. The disadvantage of that is at the end, there's no coherence to what is left. There's no, here's a core that we can agree on, a policy set. It's some things disappear. So in my mind, there are things that go there. But let me just tie back one other point is, uh, the Republicans have linked in people's minds that the failure to this economy to respond is government spending and the deficit, right or wrong. I have no, this is not my field. And so where these battles are really going to occur are going to be around the future budget. And they're going to go after, and here's a, uh, you can say, a blend in law out of politics. Uh, <laughs> things that are not currently funded are easier to cut in the future than things who are already paying for people's jobs. So there are billions of dollars that are in a bill that is to be implemented in 2014. Nobody has seen those billions of dollars. And so David has it. We can not pay doctors tomorrow. Uh, we can lay off teachers. We can cut back Social Security payments. Or we could take money out of a bill that most people don't understand. I think what is going to happen if there can't be a comprehensive agreement, uh, and it can't be the president just saying, oh, you don't have to file your tax 
payment anymore. The other side is in a very different world of where it is. If we can't, then you're going to see pieces of this future bill that have been described in 2014, they will just disappear. Okay. Uh, I, I think yeah. that's exactly right. I mean, I, I, I didn't know it was Blunden's Law, and so I've been yeah. infringing. Uh, <laughs> you've got it exactly right. Uh, Everybody I mean, needs a theory at know. this place. I, <laughs> no, I mean, the, the budgetary box is so bad that it will drive all policy discussions, yes, including this one. And you've done the arithmetic right. This yeah. is an entitlement that has not yet been received right. versus the ones that are in people's hands. Right. E much easier target. Could, could there be an easy target in, in fighting the, the obvious stuff, too, like, like waste, um, which isn't really addressed very well in the bill? One would hope. I mean, the, uh, you know, there, there was, uh, again, uh, widely uh, agreed upon by both sides that Medicare waste was enormous, perhaps as much as 10% of gross spending every year, and then that ought to be something that, that was a first priority. And so, yes. Again, in a budgetary environment, they'll, they'll immediately go to waste, fraud, and abuse. Both sides have used that one. But there's not enough waste, fraud, and abuse to solve all the problems, so they won't get to stop there. That's the problem. You know, I think one can get it over time. I think they would have to agree not to attack each other. I think many times the Democrats attack the Republicans over it. This last campaign, the Republicans attacked the Democrats over trying to save trying to reduce Medicare spending and claiming they were going to kill people's mothers and death panels and all of that. I think if the sharp edges can be toned down, there's actually a lot more that could be done there. I think if you ask the analyst community, probably 90% of all the analysts agreed with the broad direction of the way that health reform went in terms of reforming Medicare and Medicaid and the private payments for insurance, and they actually wanted it to go farther. But the 10% that's not in there has a lot of potential to make things be very bad, and that's what they've been doing the past year to two years. So, so they're going to have to tone down. If you do that, I think there's quite a lot of progress that could be made. Let's give someone in the audience a chance to ask a question. You've probably got some now that have come to mind. Would anyone like to, to pose a question to the group? Yes. Uh, Ray Fabius, Chief Medical Officer for Thomson Reuters. Uh, I'd like the panel to discuss uh, even the forerunning, the forerunner of the uh, health reform bill that may impact health care in a more significant way from a delivery system standpoint, the stimulus package. Inside the stimulus package, there was a good bit of money, $1.1 billion, set aside for comparative effectiveness. And then also a good bit of money set aside to incentivize providers to go on an electronic medical record system. Are, are those components of the stimulus package at risk also? Uh, any money that has not already been obligated by the federal government is at risk, um, without a doubt. And, uh, the, the poster children for unpopular bills, fairly otherwise, are the, the, the TARP, the bank bailout bill, and the stimulus bill. And you'll, you'll see efforts to rescind funding that's left, any residual funding that's left across the board, no question. The irony of it all, just to come to your comment, the irony of it all is there's actually a very coherent strategy for how we were going to make the health system save money. And the strategy had three parts. The first part was we were going to get information so we could know what worked, how it worked, who was doing well, who was doing poorly, how to do better. So that was what the IT money was for. It came first because of the stimulus and all of that. The second part was to change the way that payments work so that doing a better job earns you more than doing more. 
Whereas if you ask every provider now, they'll say, I make my living by doing more. We want them to say, I make my living by doing better. Then the third part was to very significantly encourage institutions, hospitals, physicians, practices, nursing homes, to come together around the idea of doing better and really fundamentally changing the way that they practice so that rather than losing patients, having them come back because we failed to deal with them, having chronic diseases develop into acute diseases because we can't figure out how to get the patient the medications, having them do all that to work. It was a very coherent strategy. What's going to happen, just to come back to what Bob was saying, what's going to happen is maybe we'll get the IT money so we won't have the information. Maybe we'll get some of the comparative effectiveness and the innovation money and the changes in Medicare. Where are we going to be left with? Exactly the same place. So if you want to do it, you, and that's, you know, if you, if you look at where people are, that's where people are. So if you want to do it, you've got to be prepared to do that and to live it out. The irony is that all the medical providers made peace with that. The hospitals, the doctors, the nursing homes, the insurers, everyone in the industry had made peace with they were going to radically transform what they do to make it higher quality and lower cost. The only people that haven't made peace with it are the Republicans who were just elected. So I think David is pretty gloomy today. And uh, the reason I say that, um, and, and the reason I you know, politely disagree, um, is that th that three-part speech he gave on, on what you wanted to accomplish is exactly the same speech Republicans gave and exactly the same thing the analysts that advise Republicans believe on terms of mm -hmm. the information that needs to be infused mm -hmm. in the system, the, the changes away from fee-for-service medicine, uh, the, the collaboration and coordination of care that is, is desirable. And so again, I come back to the fact that uh, there's a, a shared agreement about those pieces of this. Um, on the politics of it, the diagnosis is real simple. That was jammed into a stimulus bill instead of being done as part of health care reform, and Republicans resented it. They were not consulted, um, that we were not brought into the process, it turned into a partisan bill, and what they wanted was to actually do health care reform but do it in a bipartisan fashion and believe to this day that they were, they were unfairly sh uh, shoved out of the process. And so there's a residual scar there politically that's simply going to have to be dealt with. Now you know, I talk about the sort of wild card here. Something actually happened in the election uh, from a policy point of view which is going to be very difficult to predict. Uh, we have the largest share of seniors who just voted Republican probably in 25 years. Mm -hmm. It turns out that seniors dislike that bill at a level uh, beyond, uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, it's probably a 12 uh, for that. Uh, so, and, and what will privatization of Medicare well, be? So, well, let's wait a second. So this is the odd, <laughs> the odd situation is that the party that wanted to really change or reduce Medicare has become the protector of Medicare as we know it. Mm -hmm. So how that is actually going to play out uh, is, is incredibly difficult for me to understand. That's but not it's not political jujitsu yes. um, to uh, oppose and then favor. Uh, because <laughs> it's going to be uh, very difficult. Uh, seniors believe that this bill took a lot away from them. And so comparative effectiveness, which could have been presented as something which really was quite neutral, quite analytical, oh, the best of the managerial revolution, let's take the waste out, uh, got to be seen as a way that we're going to decide what somebody doesn't get. And that somebody is retired. 
And so how this discussion is going to play out isn't clear. If we had people who could be statesmen, like we can work our way through this. But if we have a play in the debate going on about comparative effectiveness, and it's once again tied to the future of seniors' lives, uh, then this is going to be a very difficult issue to get back to. It'll be just easier to move out of some of those expenditures. But this issue about the future of Medicare, the winning party cannot be seen as the one first out of the box uh, substantially cutting that, that, that program. So where do you go to make the savings? I don't have an answer for that, but the, this is a very unique finding. Uh, everything else said seniors since Ronald Reagan belong to Democrats. And now they really are with Republican leadership. But what do you do with Medicare, the one of the most expensive programs in the budget, now that that's happened? So let me be slightly less gloomy for one second. One, to, although maybe, maybe good. Um, one, one thing that's going to happen soon that may push some of this on track is the Bipartisan Deficit Commission and, you know, the Alan Simpson, Erskine Bowles. If they can push towards some kind of agreement, the Republicans would have to agree to raise taxes and the Democrats would agree to reductions in programs, then maybe that'll be a way where the Republicans can say, look, I have to, I have to do it. The issue is the Republicans would have to, one, give up on their reduced taxes, and two, they would have to go along with, with cuts in these programs. Now, they're probably not wedded to not cutting the programs the way they are the tax cuts, but you could imagine that being an opportunity to start to change the rhetoric. So I don't know what will happen. They're supposed to report next month. Maybe mm -hmm. that'll be an opportunity for saying, you know what, we don't agree with all of this, but we can work on, on, on some of it. Other than that, I'm not sure where, where it comes from, other than a government shutdown and losing a government shutdown fight again. I'm going to take the gloomy hat and you can have mine. Um, <laughs> I, I, I hold out no hope for the, 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 the commission. Um, the very first presidential commission was appointed by the very first president, George Washington. Its goal was to peacefully resolve what became known as the Whiskey Rebellion. History will show that he had to send in the troops, thus setting the precedent for all future presidential commissions. They accomplished nothing. <laughs> and this one will accomplish nothing. Um, I think the, the best possible outcome for that commission is two fairly well-articulated, numerically informed plans, one heavy on revenues, one heavy on spending, about which the two sides disagree. And then we move into 2011 and we start that that, that budgetary fight. I think the budgetary stuff is going to be central to the future and the reality will be at some point Republicans and Democrats are both going to have to stand up and say we're going to spend less on Medicare. Period. And because we have to and we will. Um, we are on a, a track that is literally a debt spiral. It is, uh, it is an invitation for national disaster without exaggeration. I'm, I'm a lifelong budget guy, professionally gloomy by uh, budgetary nature. <laughs> you know, you cannot exaggerate how awful this situation is. And for that reason, everything that we say about conventional politics and how they play out literally has to be wrong because we cannot go down the path we have uh, uh, charted for ourselves as a nation where we're putting at risk literally our prosperity and freedom. And so we're going to cut some Medicare. Hopefully we'll do it in a way that does not cut the quality of care underneath the dollars. That'll, that would be a very good outcome. Um, we're, going to, we're going to change future Medicare, or future Social Security problems. We're going to do a lot of things. Getting from here to there politically, I predict, will be very rocky. I mean, there's no question about it. 
how, how can anyone do that? Because there is no mileage in cutting programs, though, because Americans to. say they want to cut costs. But if you ask them, you know, Americans are perfectly happy to pay through the nose for health care. They, they say they're, they're not, but, but they're very happy with their plans. But here's what, here's, here's, so let me keep Doug's happy hat for a moment. Just <laughs> if you ask the question, what is that, all that two and a half trillion dollars buying medical care? Our best guess is that about $700 billion a year, billion, is not buying anyone anything that's improving their health. That's a size of the bank bailout. <coughs> that's the size of the stimulus bill that every year we're dumping in the Potomac River, the Charles River, the East River, wherever Jimmy Hoffa is buried, because we haven't figured out how to run the system well. So the key is not to think about it as we're going to cut someone's Medicare benefits. The key is to think about it as if your mother goes into the hospital with a hip fracture, we know that if they pay attention to her, she's less likely to come back. But now one in five people in Medicare come back in the hospital within a month. A fair number of them have never seen a doctor between admissions. If you get them to see a doctor or a nurse, you can get that number to 6%. Okay, Let's figure out how to do that. Let's figure out what we need to do that. So there's, so when a system is so inefficient, you can, by making it work better, save a lot of money. This happened throughout the economy in every single industry, with the one exception being healthcare. Maybe two exceptions, education is probably the other yeah. one. So we know it's possible. We have a lot of ideas about how to do it. What we need is to actually be able to do it. The thing about health reform that was most surprising to me is that it took a lot of the micromanaging of that Medicare system, which is the big gorilla here, took it out of Congress. And everyone said, everyone, people in Congress, people outside of Congress said, if you want to make it better, get it out of Congress. I fear what may be happening is it going back in. If we can keep it out and get the system to work, it won't be whose benefits do we cut, unlike Social Security, which is just money. It'll be the system works, and by the way, your mother's not coming back in the hospital and you'll feel better about it. This sounds awfully like the, the accusation I made at the beginning, though, is Democrats saying, if, if Americans just got it, they would, they would like it. And, and can you make Americans like that? There's, there's a, a, an editorial in the New England Journal of Medicine this mm -hmm. week by a, a physician in Australia saying mm -hmm. that he had explained to this man that chemotherapy mm -hmm. would not help yep. him, it would make him miserable, yep. it would cost money. Nonetheless, the patient opted for chemo and in fact died sooner than he would have mm -hmm. had he just mm -hmm. taken morphine and mm -hmm. enjoyed Christmas with his family. Mm -hmm. And that is the story of mm -hmm. healthcare in this mm -hmm. country to, to a large degree. So is there any mileage to be had in trying to convince voters that we can cut these things and you'll be better off because they really that they don't get it, that, that, that that's good for them. Let me come back to your mother for a second. Would you like your mother to be in the hospital or at home? Um, that's, a, that's a difficult question to ask people. If you, if she um, has, uh, if she falls down, uh, I shouldn't make it so personal, she falls down and breaks her hip, would you rather that there be complications that have to be treated on an inpatient setting or no complications so she can be ambulatory? Most people will say, I want her to be ambulatory. The key is, and, and people kind of understand that the quality is not where it should be. That is, you show people the Mayo Clinic and they say, yes, I want care like that. And you show them the Cleveland Clinic and you show them Geisinger and you show them all the models. And all the models work. They're all in the U.S. They're not in Europe. They all work. We know it can. So people understand that and they say, yes, I want that. 
The point of healthcare reform was to not was to say we're going to have a system that evolutionarily gets there. We're not going to wipe the slate clean and do this that. We're going to put in something that gets us there. So what you need to do is understand that that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to work with the doctors. We're trying to work with the insurers. We're trying to work with all the companies, with you as patients, to try to get there. And that, as I say, that is where the, and as Doug said, that is where the analyst community is. That within 5, 10, 15 years, we can be getting ourselves there in exactly the same way that every other industry in the economy figured out how to give us what we want. Okay? And it wasn't because we wiped it away. It's because year by year, month by month, day by day, they worked on getting better. So we know that that's possible. What we have to do is create the playing field, the incentives, the information, the resources where that can happen. And if we do, then we'll really, then, then we can realize those savings and we'll really be incredibly happy. And we won't have rationed chemotherapy to 88-year-olds. We'll have taken women who come back in the hospital and said, you know what, we're going to treat you better so you don't need to come back. Right. So let's 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 offer um, some questions to the audience. Can we have some questions? Would anyone like to present anything to the panelists? Hear from the audience, yes, please. Art students in Harvard Business School. It'll sound like that. Um, one of the things the the auto industry proved is you can't inspect in quality. You have to, in fact, build it in. A lot of this sounds like we're going to send out a bunch of inspectors to say you did it wrong. Whereas at least the hospital I serve on the board. Once you start with delivering quality, you also deliver much cheaper. Yep. I saw none of that in, of course, I can't say I read the 2,400 pages, but don't. I did. <laughs> well, this is public health. This is bad for health. You don't read that. <laughs> but I can tell you there's less than a quarter percent of America who followed that suit, so. I'm just questioning you. Am I wrong in my interpretation of oh, no, a lot not, of inspection? Oh, no, you're not wrong at all, which is why. What the, one, one of um, my friends put it well, what this bill does is it enables cost savings. It doesn't require it. So there are no inspectors out there. What it says is we'll give you the information, we'll change the payments so that it's in your best interest to do higher quality, lower cost. Now you, you being the hospital, you being the physician's office, you being the insurance company, you figure out how to make it work. And that's going to mean an enormous change in how the institutions operate. Most hospitals are hierarchical. Most highly productive companies are flat. Most physicians' offices involve people pulling records and all of that. They're going to have to get rid of that. They're going to have to go electronic and all sorts of things. You figure out how to do it. The, the, the um, reason why the official estimates of health reform showed only savings of $150 billion is because Doug's old colleagues at the Congressional Budget Office thought that no hospital, not a single one, would respond to the incentives and respond to the information and get better. So therefore, there was none of that. There was a bunch of effort and zero savings because, well, they could have done it already. Why haven't they done it? It's too hard, all of that. If it's enabled, it's encouraged, it's not required or inspected. Yeah. Again, I, I up, though, because yeah. one of the things in the system is if you cut your costs, you get paid. More, you get to pay more into the uh, unreimbursed health care pool 
there, there's really very little incentive, and if you go mm -hmm. to Blue Cross Blue Shield, Correct. they get 6% of the costs, in right. the, and if they escalate Correct. the costs, it's just fine. That's what the whole bill was about. The whole bill was about trying to change that. Uh, Doug and Bob? I, I don't want to relitigate the bill. I mean, we, you know, we, we, it's the law of the land. I think it's, it's very poorly designed in many ways, um, even though I share a lot of the objectives. Um, uh, but the big concern I have now is that what we're seeing about it in practice already is big consolidation as opposed to what I would like to see is far more competitive markets, uh, both in the insurance and, and providers. We're seeing a lot of consolidation quickly as a result of this bill. That, that scares me about whether we're going to get, in the end, the beneficial health economics results that we'd like out of this. Uh, the, just how this may play out, the 210 election was about fixing your slide, the health care system. I see 208. The 210 was about fixing government deficits, which is Medicare and Medicaid. And I don't think you're going to find Republicans coming to the table wanting to finish the rest of the health care system at this moment. I think they're going to be willing to find some agreement about where we go with Medicare and Medicaid. And let me deal with a subtle point, but it's incredibly important. It's one thing providing incentives, but we drifted in the who decides if mom gets chemotherapy. The people I survey know only one answer. They can't work in Washington. Mm -hmm. And so that's a very different thing than whether or not I provide you an incentive to give immunizations and be sure I follow you home. And the other is, uh, just look, so New York Times uh, today, uh, where MRIs are good for something it wasn't good before, uh, and a lot of people who didn't get one and didn't need it now need it. Mm -hmm. And the answer is they don't want to hear that there's a commission made up mm -hmm. of my colleagues uh, that uh, have decided that you're not going to have the MRI because it doesn't meet some threshold. We haven't reached that point. So the, where we have reached the point is a faith in this managerial revolution. Let's provide incentives, let systems work, mm -hmm. let's use new kinds of people, let's mm -hmm. decision making, but mm -hmm. not boards that decide mm -hmm. what's available to you, you or not. And that has so gotten politicized in this election that if we return to one by one, we're gonna look at technologies and boards decide it, we're not gonna get the, what I consider the easier stuff, which are incentives to make these systems work, and using Medicare and Medicaid first but be very careful because I don't think Republicans feel they were elected to fix the way everything goes in every state. I really don't. I just think they no. want to deal with the deficit. They want to start some of these things going on. And if we can move in that agreement, there'll be some bipartisanship. But if it's back to the whole health system, I don't think they were elected. And if it has any smell of somebody deciding if mom gets that technology, that isn't what they think their vote was about. That got so politicized. Well, they have that. They have yeah. the money. I mean, right. there's too much money in this for right. for us to uh, manage in the short term. So the money will be a target, and it's also literally the poster child for it, it doesn't work. It's government failing because I do not believe that the Treasury and HHS can do what the law says they're going to do. They cannot find out of the 300 million Americans those who are each month eligible for the subsidies, identify the amount of the subsidy they should have send in advance that subsidy to the insurer of their choice on an exchange in a state where they may be located that month and then move, um, they can't do it. I mean, it, it's a, a beautiful fantasy, uh, but it's a fantasy. And, and we, we couldn't even deliver a very tiny uh, tax credit that was advanceable in, in the trade adjustment assistance, a little prototype. Uh, the two years it took to implement that and the tiny success rate that it's had all suggest that this is a fiasco waiting to happen. 
And that's what Republicans are going to see. They're going to see, wait a minute, you know, this is just a, a big government uh, disaster and it's all going to fall apart. Where's the money going to go if it's not going to go to the right person? And the politics of that are just toxic. So far, speaking of toxic politics, we focused mostly on Congress, but how much of this is going to play out in the states? We, we've got a question from an online viewer who's uh, asking, do you believe that the governors are, are going to cooperate? Um, he's asking specifically about setting up these insurance exchanges. Um, but how much of this is going to have to play out in the states, and how are they going to cooperate? There's a lot of... Um, uh, uh, uncertainty about that. I mean, you know, some governors have been very, very vocal, have, you know, said, I don't want the money, I don't want to play. Um, uh, some have, you know, sued. Uh, we've, we've seen uh, some states take this, uh, particularly the, the individual mandate to the, the, uh, the Supreme Court in the end before we're done. So I, I don't know, but, you know, there is uh, now active talk and focus on setting up the exchanges, right? I, I think one of the things that would be very valuable out of this would be to have good, solid, state-based exchanges where people can go and do uh, decent shopping for health insurance. Um, how will they actually get implemented is going to be, I think, the flashpoint. What will you do? Will it be Utah, Massachusetts? What will HHS insist they do? A lot of governors are, are right now sort of drawing their lines in the sand, and, and it's not obvious how that all plays out. It, I, I'd say, um, given their budgetary difficulties, they're nervous about the Medicaid expansions, given their desires to control insurance in their state, they're worried about a heavy-handed mandate on how their exchange runs, and both of those are going to be big issues. You know, it's interesting. Some, even some of the governors who are suing, whose states are suing, are through the back door saying, now help me out. How can I deal with this? So it, there's a little bit of that, but the other thing that's going on, and I think it touches on what Bob said, they do have a faith that we can set up a better system, a better management system. And a lot of that can happen at the state level easier than it can happen in Washington because there's so much distrust in Washington, whereas in a state capital, there's often a lot more trust. So they sit down with their, they hear from their providers. The providers are actually, many of them, anxious to get going on taking advantage of some of the new things in the legislation. Plus, they desperately want folks to sign up so they get the money from them, which is not an insignificant thing for those providers. They sit down with the insurers, and the insurers have had, the, in many cases, the daylight scared out of them, and they want to um, figure out how to play in this new field. And so I, I think that, actually, we might see a fair amount of action at the state level dealing with the cost issue and the coverage issues. I agree, Washington has the capacity to strangle it. But if they do it what I expect and hope they will, then it could actually open up a lot of opportunities for a number of very creative states to really make the system work a whole lot better. Is there any chances that it actually will, any progress will be made in the states? Congress will be blowing off steam. The Republicans have to show that, that they've come in and done something, and the states could have the opportunity to quietly do something. It doesn't have to be quiet. I mean, what you have under the, the law is that I can be very aggressive and move ahead and implement and get the funds. Uh, if you go back historically after Medicaid, which people thought was going to be a tiny program, it turns out about three years later, five states had huge programs. New York, uh, Nelson Rockefeller, then a Republican, covered like 70 percent of the uninsured. Uh, Arizona refused to participate. Mm -hmm. So what you saw is that a group of states decided that they really wanted to move very quickly. That's what you're going to see here. 
and uh, you'll wake up four years from now, even if nothing changes in the poisonous political environment, five, seven states will look like Massachusetts, they will cover most people, they will extend it. Five or seven states uh, are going to look like Arizona was. I'm not participating, uh, I send lawyers to the meetings, I make sure I get a minimal amount. But the thing to watch is the Supreme Court decision about the mandate uh, is what a lot of Republican governors go to watch. And if the court says the mandate is legal, many of them will come in at some level, regrettably, and everything else. But they're not going to make a final decision. You, remember, the 20 states they're suing are mostly Republican governors. Mm -hmm. uh, and the leadership in the House have said that uh, it is unconstitutional. So they have to wait for this uh, court decision. And uh, as someone who respects uh, scholars, they tell me one thing, and then someone who studies politics tells me another. So uh, scholarly, I see the mandate being uh, kept up. People who are professors of politics and studies Supreme Court say it could very well go a different way. So that is a real milestone for what states will do. But after that, if nothing else happens, there'll be this huge differentiation. And you can pick your, your state in terms of how far they go. There's actually these two big legal issues. I mean, one is the individual mandate, and that will play out one right. way or another. But there's a second set of suits that are about a de facto mandate on the states. I mean, yeah. in principle, this is voluntary, where you only do things if you get the money, and so right. you sign on. But they have actually um, filed suit under the, the argument that this is so broad and sweeping that de facto they have no option, and that this is a, a large imposition, unconstitutionally large, by the federal government on the states. That's the one I'm watching actually much more carefully. Just one point on the what the states will do. I think the thing that the states cannot do well on their own is cover people because it requires right. money. Right. In Massachusetts, we had some money that we had stolen from the federal government that they were threatening to take back unless we used it for something. And we had Borrowed, I'm sure, is the proper term. <laughs> <laughs> and we, it, but we're just amongst friends. <laughs> and we, and we I, had... I, I wouldn't be the right winger that I am if I didn't say it's the taxpayers' money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Please. And, and I'm grateful for your money. <laughs> we, um, and we had raised taxes on ourselves, which we were using for stuff. So that was approximately how we did it. And even then, we wound up not giving enough to the public hospitals, and they wound up suing the state. and or not the public hospitals, the charity care providers, and they wound up suing the state and so on. When it came to California, no money, no deal. When it comes to every other state, no money, no deal. So the thing that the federal government absolutely has to do is it has to provide the resources to cover people. And if we get to a situation where that is cut, I do not expect the states to do a lot of good stuff because you're then going to have all the providers coming in saying, okay, you want me to save money? I'll save money. First thing I'm going to do is get rid of the programs for the uninsured people. Do you want me to do that? The thing will fall apart. And so this, I, I think, is the right moment to say what I think is the fundamental structural flaw in the bill, which is that if you look at, at America, the, the sort of typical family budget with co-pays and other things in there is about 20 cents out of every dollar in health care. And what the bill promises is that no family should ever have to pay more than 10. Well, that's a gap between promise and reality that has to be filled, and the question is from where? And, and the answer is, well, we don't know where, and so that's why it's not going to work. I mean, it's an overpromise on something that is not 10 cents on the dollar cheap. It's 20 cents on the dollar expensive, and that's why you have to fix the delivery system first, or you can't make that promise. Uh, another um, 
group that we've left out of this is, is the bureaucrats. Is there anything that um, agencies like HHS can just work on quietly to, to get done without having to have the involvement of Congress? And will we see a lot of busyness in the next few weeks and months? Yes. yes. Uh, they, can move, they can move ahead with regulation. So what we talked about before is uh, the House can really stop budgets, but the uh, administration has huge regulatory discretion. And unless the bill is repealed, lots of pieces about how insurers behave or not or how uh, things go absolutely can be done. And so you're going to see this two-track thing. You're going to see a debate going on about whether a whole piece of the bill should disappear while every month a new set of policy regulations are coming out. And it's a picture of when you don't have a political consensus. But they absolutely can move ahead in, in regulatory policy. Getting rid of the regulatory structure is much harder than not funding pieces of future programs. I agree, although um, I, I think a, a couple of things. One is that change is always complicated, and the advantage of having a bill was that Congress was saying, you go do this and we'll keep our hands off of it. If Congress is going to renege on that, it's going to be very, very hard to be ambitious in terms of yeah. thinking about what to do. Plus there's now you know, going to be minute scrutiny over whether every person in HHS has ever said anything nice about the UK. And <laughs> if we're going to play that game, the ability to do innovative things is just going to disappear. So I would have loved it if rather than saying, hey, look, here's someone who actually likes some other country, let's massacre him, they would have said, you know what, he's perfectly good. Hey, we've got five thinkers of our own. Do you think you could hire the five thinkers, the Holtzikens of the Republican Party, and maybe we can all sit there, since there's so much analytic consensus, and figure out what to do? And I'd really love it if it, were, if it turned out to be that way, and I'm not sure it will be. No. Um, <laughs> I mean, decisively no. The, the notion they can move ahead quietly, get stuff done in this, uh, I don't think so. You, you will have uh, tremendous amounts of oversight by the House. Um, there are already discontent uh, about the nature of the rulemaking process under the new law. Skip, step, uh, steps skipped. Um, uh, waivers provided with, with, with no public rationale who got waivers who did not. Um, so th they're going to start looking at all of this. So quiet is over. I mean, we're, we're about to enter a roar. I mean, that's for sure. And then the second uh, thing that happens is every year HHS has to get an appropriation to run it itself. Uh, that appropriation will have to go through the House Appropriations Committee and ultimately the conference agreements. Um, appropriations have traditionally been used as a lever for uh, uh, performance, behavior, uh, bending the will. With, pick your favorite uh, uh, characterization, but I mean, that's going to happen. I mean, it, there, there's no question. And so uh, I think the notion that somehow a federal agency can quietly move ahead on something it, it is not going to be uh, literally feasible in, in the, the years to come. We've got a very well-behaved audience here, but um, we've got about five minutes left, and I'm wondering if anyone else would like to ask something. Yes, please. Hi, I'm Alicia Widge. I'm a student up here at the School of Public Health. I'm studying health policy. And I'm basically foreseeing a lot of really hard decisions in healthcare have to be made, you know, over the next 10 or 20 years and beyond. And politically, I don't see those decisions moving forward in Congress, in part because I see such partisanship, especially after the recent election. 
And I'm thinking about why that is, and it seems like voters are really responding to a lot of those partisan arguments. And in particular, Republican lawmakers are being rewarded for not working with Democrats. And it seems really difficult for me, for Democrats in Congress, I'm thinking, what are they supposed to do now? And I wanted to ask all of you, what do you think they should be doing now? Those Democrats that thankfully are, are still in, in the House and the Senate, what do you recommend they do going forward? Doug, I'm sure you have some suggestions. <laughs> I've suppressed the first three. <laughs> um, uh, Lest we all weep too much for the Democrats, uh, the President of the United States is, is right. a Democrat right. and remains the single most powerful person for setting the nation's agenda, has the largest megaphone, and the greatest ability to influence the future public policy, uh, no question about it. Uh, the Senate is still controlled by Democrats. Um, Republicans who control one tiny branch of uh, the Congress are not going to set the agenda. They, they, the they simply will not. And they um, will have an obligation to uh, vote based on the principles that they expressed during the most recent election and, um, and see if the, the voters actually view them as having been accountable to the promises they made and then we'll see what happens in the future. But I don't, I don't, I think the notion that somehow Republicans have this, this vast ability to, to change the way the world looks is just hugely overstated. We've got to mark this to market. It's, it's a lot of hype. I mean, in the end, they don't have that much. Uh, the second thing is that, that, you know, in the end, this is, uh, this is retail politics, and the, the people who deserve credit or blame for the, the government we have are the, the voters themselves. You know, we, we always complain about deficits, and we, we send people to, to Washington with, without uh, punishing those who create deficits. And, you know, so I, I believe that um, we will solve this in, in the next 20 years. We have huge decisions to make, um, both budgetary and on health policy. This country has always found ways to make these decisions. It is, it is characterized both by the disharmony in the moment, but in the capacity to compromise and be practical about its future. And I think that's what we'll see again. It's just not always pretty to watch. We've got about a minute remaining, and I'm going to um, ask each of our panelists in one sentence to wrap up where we're going to be in one year from today. And Bob, I'll start with you. Where are we going to be in a year? Uh, we're going to be in contentious division. But the second part of the sentence is, uh, this country is moving through very fast political cycles. So what we're talking about today, in 206 was reversed, uh, in 208 went one way, and two years from now, we actually could see a shift in the mood back to people wanting more activism on a broader issue. But one year from now, it's going to be mean, contentious, and it's not going to be clear the picture of where we're going. There'll be a bill, but what's in it will be very difficult to describe. There were a lot of semicolons in that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> now, don't you ever write a memo for me that way. <laughs> Dave, what would you say? We'll definitely have death panels. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, we will go through through a burning bridge, I'm not quite sure the right analogy, in the next few months. We will either have or come extremely close to having a government shutdown. And we will probably not have any agreement on how to move forward on health care except with the idea that the 2012 elections maybe will settle a little bit more. And that's in part because there are no wise men, I think, on the Republican side who are willing to meet anyone halfway. Doug? 
I like one-sided bets, so a year from now, David will be in, in a better mood because he can't <laughs> get in a worse mood, and um, we will have seen uh, the leading edge of unwinding this bill uh, take place through the discretionary spending process. Uh, it will slow down the implementation and, in that way, put it on a timetable to coincide with the 2012 election, and I think that's exactly right. That's when this will be ultimately right. be resolved. Great. We'd like to thank everybody for coming. Thank, thank you to our panelists for offering such very sage analysis and, and insights. Thanks, thanks for everyone who came, and thanks to everybody who's watching on the web. Thank you for your questions, and I hope everybody can now go and report intelligently on this subject. <laughs> <laughs>